<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast, brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had... The, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock, all these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, he, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text WINE to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Now, Laura Ingram goes off on this rant about we, right, we, and this is on the uh, fourth anniversary, by the way, of Michael Brown's death. 
LeBron's not an immigrant, but I think the, the whole issue of people of color in general is just exactly what Laura Ingram is talking about. I don't know exactly what she's thinking, but looking at it, this is what it sounds like. Listening to it, this is what it sounds like. Uh, just this year, uh, 12 unarmed black men have been shot and killed by police in uh, 2018. Antoine Rose, Stefan Clark, Rashawn Washington, Anthony Marcel Green, Robert Lawrence White, Marcus David uh, L. Peters, uh, Juan Marquis Jones, Danny Thomas, Cameron Hall, Cher Michael Ezef, and uh, Rennell Foster and Martha, Arthur McPhee Jr. So, you know, it's, it's continuing. It's continuing. This rant of hers that these are changes that none of us ever voted for and most of us don't like. Actually, they're changes that we did vote for. And this, this is the consequence. Uh, I mean, you know, Lyndon Johnson, as I recall, uh, pushed through most of these changes that did away with the practice of saying that if we're going to take in immigrants, we want to take them from Europe first, foremost, and always, which is what Trump's trying to take us back to. Only let white people into the country. People of color need not apply. And it, it's just, it's a, it's a really sad thing. And it's, and it's turning into not just not just a rant, not just a, a perspective or whatever from the melanin paranoid hard right, but it's turning into something that is tearing our country apart. You've got this 99-year-old Nuremberg prosecutor. His name is Ben Ferens, and this is actually a tweet from him. He says, forcing desperate young parents to surrender custody of their weeping children because they are un unable to uh, comply with restrictive immigration rules is a disgrace to our great country. He's an, he, you know, he's an American who prosecuted Nazi war criminals. Such cruelty should be condemned as a crime against humanity. He went on to say, we list crimes against humanity in the statute of the International Criminal Court. What could cause more great suffering than what they did in the name of immigration law? It's ridiculous. We have to change the law if it's the law. Well, I would say it's not the law. It's Stephen Miller and Donald Trump's and, and Mike Pence's and uh, John Kelly's application of the law. But, it, you know, isn't it time for us to look around and say, you know, who are we really as a country after all? Who are we? Are we this, this paranoid group of you know, roughly 70% of, of the population of this country who, are, who want to assert absolute dominance and control over everything? Or are we the melting pot that we were told we are when we were kids? Are we the country of egalitarian values who welcomes people to our shores? Are we the country that for years and years said, you know, send me your, your huddled masses, you know, the, the Emma Lazarus poem on the, on the plate on the Statue of Liberty? I, I would like to see us take a breath, have a little more compassion, and reject the politics of hate and fear that quite literally got Donald Trump elected and that he's continuing to use to promote, well, you know, even the, the guy in Ohio who just got elected. Trump went down there and gave a hate speech. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. We need to shake this stuff up and wake up from this, this bizarre dream that we're experiencing. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Anita in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Anita, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. And don't forget, Texas and California used to be part of Mexico. Right. There were a lot of brown people here. Yeah, this thing of uh, irrational fear from the left of fascism, I don't think it's irrational at all when we hear 
the majority of Republicans saying that they think it would be okay for Donald Trump to just get rid of the media, ban the media that criticized him or he doesn't like. Right. Or, you know. And 44% of his followers are fine with that. Yeah, and they're fine with suspending elections. Whoa. Yeah, the majority of them. So I think that we have to be aware of that. We have a, a history in this world of creepy fascism. We've seen it before, and we need to learn from that. No, I agree, and I think it's important for us to look at these things with a cold eye, with a clear eye. We just say, okay, this is what's going on. On the one hand. On the other hand, I don't want this program or, frankly, a progressive message to turn into, oh, my God, oh, my God, the sky is falling. No, um, no uh, I agree. You know, no, and, I, I know. We've got to be careful about that, too. But we still need to be aware of what's happening. Yeah. I do feel that from the left, I've heard this argument that we should go after the employers. And I can understand that sounds right. But the problem with that is we legitimize the fear that brown people are taking our jobs, which is not true. So well, they, yes we and no. It, it actually, it actually, in some industries, it absolutely is true. I mean, look at the construction industry. Look at the meatpacking industry. These were both industries that were heavily unionized. I mean, really well, that, heavily but unionized. They were unionized, and they've been they wiped able- out by and large because of labor that is exploitable because it's not legal. But that's because the unions have lost their power. That's not because brown people were taking the jobs. Well, in part, I mean, yes, Reagan and 40 years of neoliberal policies since Reagan have stripped unions of their power tremendously, not to mention what the Supreme Court has been doing. But it was the the employers, it was the companies, the construction companies, the meatpacking companies who walked into that and said, cool, and who, to a large extent, I would say, supported that. You know, we can't deny, Anita, that when you have a loose labor market, you have low wages and relatively high unemployment. We combat that by strengthening unions and getting more industries unionized. I agree. Not by blaming brown people, because you have people that have been here for a decade, two decades, and who have families. They're not going to return because their employer fires them because they can't uh, Right, they view themselves as Americans. And this is why we should have some sort of a rational policy with regard to immigration. But there is a reality. I mean, David Ricardo defined this back at the turn of the 19th century. There is a reality that if you inject 10, 15 million people into your labor market in a labor market of 150 million, roughly, you know, that's almost 10 percent of the labor market. You're going to see a change in the, always the balance of power. Always... No, it hasn't. It actually hasn't. No, it... When we brought the, with the Chinese and people said that they were taking our jobs, it's always been that way. The Italians, the Germans, it's always been we blame somebody for taking our jobs. We need to strengthen our unions. We need to get unionization. It wasn't that we were. Yes, there were people blaming the Chinese who were brought in by the railroads in the 1880s to bust the American strikers. And there was. I'm sorry. That was the argument used against my family, my Italian ancestors. They said the Italians were taking the jobs. Yeah. I mean, that's always been the argument. But the truth is, if we unionize more industries, you would see higher pay. That's when pay has gone down, when unions lost their power. Right. I think that what happens is we start looking at every brown person that works with us suspiciously. Are they undocumented? It just creates bad, you know, it creates fear. I agree. I agree. And if we're going to have any kind of discussion about immigration policy, it has to be tied into the economic consequences of immigration policy. And in order to assimilate people, there's an appropriate level of assimilation. This is the problem that Europe has right now with hundreds of thousands, millions of immigrants coming from outside of Europe. Let's set aside the color of their skin for a moment. 
who have different cultures and different religions and different cultural practices, at a certain level, assimilation is relatively easy. When assimilation is no longer easy, people freak out. And our immigration policy in the United States historically has been about a million people a year. Steve Miller wants to take it to 50,000 people a year, right? I mean, this is the conversation that Donald Trump is having right now. That's completely irrational. That has nothing to do with labor markets. That has to do with race. We need to disentangle these two topics, in my if humble you, opinion. If you look at the data, Tom, you will see that immigrants and undocumented provide an infusion of money into our economy. Yeah, I'm not talking they about undocumented. I'm talking about legal immigrants. And yes, no, I, know. I get it, that, you know, legal, more economic legal. activity. But again, it is the Koch brothers and the Main Street Republicans who have historically been in favor of basically no borders, let unlimited numbers of people into the country. And we're the only developed country that does that in the world right now. That does what? That we allow just anybody into the country? Because that's not true. To we don't work. allow anybody into the country. No, I, I lived in Germany for a year. It took me six months to get a work permit. I worked in Australia. Uh, and, and it took America me months to get a work permit in Australia. Other countries say, if you're going to work in our country, you have to be here legally. We have, since Reagan's 1986 change in immigration policies, on the right they refer to it as his amnesty. But since that period of time, we basically stopped enforcing our immigration laws with regard to employers. And I think that we need to get that back. And how are you going to fix that? Because like I said, there are people that have been here for decades. Right. They're not going to leave. You're you have to do two things. On the one hand, you come up with an immigration policy that, much like Reagan did, actually, his policy was not irrational. It's just his stopping the enforcement of employer sanctions was the crazy part about it. But you say, if you've been in this country more than a certain number of years, I think it was 10 or 11 years when Reagan did it in 86, as I recall. I haven't read about this in quite some time, but I'm just remembering the 80s that if you've been in this country a certain period of time, you haven't committed crimes, you've been continuously employed, you know, you have those things that would define you as having roots in the community, like a family, then you're eligible for fast-tracked citizenship. If you have only right. been in the country a year, sorry, you know, you're not going to be able to work. You know, we're not going to throw you in prison and we're not going to tear your children away from you. But if you can't work and you're not eligible for welfare programs, odds are you're going to leave. And I, Well, let me just say something. I live in San Antonio, Texas. We have a lot of undocumented people here and, sure. and documented people here. And they start their own businesses. They add Yeah, so they're by and large very good are, people. Yeah. They add so, so let's change our laws our to accommodate that reality, Anita. Right. I do agree that we need immigration reform, but I think we need to be careful when we start talking about how we need to punish these employers because people, they don't think about it in a nuanced way. No, no, wait a minute. The employers are loving the fact that people who are working for them are not here legally. And so they can sexually abuse them. They can physically abuse them. They can steal right. their paychecks I from them. Agree. I mean, this stuff is epidemic in these industries, particularly well, now in the construction and meatpacking industries. Right. I know, but I don't disagree with that. But that's why we need really good immigration reform. And My we need, point. We need more unionization to increase our wages and also to make policy for what we do with the people who have been here 10, 20 years or whatever. But I think that's what I'm talking about, the nuance of it. Well, that's where we need to strip the racial piece out of this and to some extent the cultural piece, although there is a reality of an appropriate rate at which any country slash culture slash political economy can change over time or for that matter can assimilate people in a way that's going to work for their economy. It has to be reasonable and it has to be organized and it shouldn't be, you know, people on the right screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, 
brown people are coming. And it shouldn't be people on the libertarian right screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, we should have open borders, which is what the well, libertarians promote. I don't know any Democrat that wants open No, there are borders. no Democrats saying this. This is the thing. The Democrats are blamed for this by Republicans and Trump, but there are no Democrats calling for open borders. Instead, you've no. got people like Rand Paul and other libertarians. And Rand Paul, he's moderated that kind of talk. But this is historically the libertarian position, is that borders should not represent a barrier to money, which by and large they don't. They shouldn't represent a barrier to commerce, which by and large they don't. And they shouldn't represent a barrier to the movement of people. And by and large, they do. And I think that they should. And I think they should continue to within reasonable bounds. But anyhow, Anita, thank you for a a thoughtful conversation. I appreciate it. It's good to hear from you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but... The website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer, and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now... Instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. On the line with us is Lori Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website. You can tweet Lori at Wallach Lori, W-A-L-L-A-C-H. Lori, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. So uh, things moving ahead on NAFTA here, or the, uh, the Trump administration's version of a replacement for NAFTA. Do I have that right? Well, given... The big implications this renegotiation of NAFTA will have on all of our lives, your tracking it the way you have has been really super. Because, but for people listening to your show, a lot of people would not know that this very hour, this very week, will be the decision whether or not there is going to be a NAFTA replacement deal anytime soon. Hmm. Mexican negotiators are in town. And uh, unless you're reading Inside U.S. Trade or some other wonky publication, 
No one but Tom's listeners are going to know that's happening and how important it is. Yeah, it's, pre it's pretty amazing. Uh, explain uh, to our listeners why this is important to them. So folks will recall NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was negotiated between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada in 1993, was a big controversial fight. And the reason why was it was kind of a slow-motion coup d'etat by trade agreement. So the appealing brand free trade agreement got stuffed with all kinds of garbage that had really nothing to do with trade. And the most single important stuff that isn't about trade, that is in that NAFTA that affects everyone, are investor rights that simultaneously promote the outsourcing that has now led to almost a million U.S. jobs being certified by the government as lost to NAFTA. And that's just under one specific program to help workers. It's worse than that. The related downward pressure on everyone's wages, because you don't have to lose your job to NAFTA to feel it. Right. When all those manufacturing jobs went, that all those guys were competing for the service sector jobs that I outsourced, which meant even though the service sector was growing, Wages were flatter down because more folks were chasing the same job. And then that is also the language that empowers multinational corporations to attack, sue the U.S. government in front of three corporate attorneys, with these attorneys authorized to order U.S. taxpayers to pay unlimited damages, including for the company's future expected profits. For any claim that U.S. environmental laws, food safety regulations, court rulings violate their extraordinary NAFTA special investor rights, almost a half a billion dollars has been paid out under that scam in attacks on policy. We're writing checks with, with taxpayer dollars to foreign corporations because our environmental regulations prevent them from doing business in and with the United States in a way that's insanely dirty, right? So here's the perfect example, and this is getting rid of that stuff, the outsourcing incentives and the corporate tribunal. Right. That's what this whole renegotiation is going to be measured by. If they do not get rid of the outsourcing incentives and put in strong labor standards subject to swift and certain enforcement to raise wages and get rid of those corporate tribunals, this ain't no NAFTA replacement. Right. This is more of the same. Which, which, so, which is where I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, the, Donald Trump is an oligarch. He's, he's a billionaire. His buddies are oligarchs. You got Wilbur Ross in there, who Fortune magazine now says is not only an oligarch, but a grifter. <laughs> I can't see where these guys are going to surrender their and their Mar-a-Lago buddies' power over American government. This is a very delicate line, Lori. Uh, you know, Sherrod Brown, for example, down in Ohio, a great progressive Democrat running for re-election right now in the Senate. And he has been unwilling to criticize Trump on trade um, because, you know, he gets it. In Ohio, Ohio has been wiped out by NAFTA and other free trade deals for the last 40 years or 30 years since the early 90s. And yet, I'm not sure that I trust Trump. I mean, he screws up everything he touches. I'm not sure that I trust him to do this right either. And, and, and I'm only grudgingly acknowledging that, that this might be, if it's done right, a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I know and like, I mean, I don't know him personally, but he's been on my program a number of times, Robert Lighthizer, who's Trump's trade advisor. 
and I, uh, you know, I philosophically agree with this, as I know you do too, and Sherrod Brown does. But you know, how do we handle it? Well, you've just hit on the key thing. The reason this miraculously could be a renegotiation that actually delivers some of those core demands from labor unions, groups like us, public citizens, from progressives in Congress, the only reason that's a possibility is because of who is the chief trade negotiator, Robert Lighthizer. It's a cabinet-level job. He's a very experienced guy. He probably agrees with you and me on 70% on trade issues. Mm. He personally opposes investor state dispute settlement passionately. He personally opposes the Buy America ban that's also shoved in NAFTA that promotes outsourcing. He believes the current rules incentivize outsourcing. And he is committed to getting rid of the poll factor, the low wages in Mexico, the race to the bottom of U.S. companies, busting unions in Mexico to keep wages low, to basically push down wages in North America. And so, despite exactly what you say, because a good chunk of the administration is fighting him, it's kind of St. George and the Dragon, <laughs> mm-hmm. because he's got Wilbur Ross, and he's got Mnuchin, he had Cohen before, all trying to make this renegotiation just what you and I are afraid of, TPP 2.0. Right, just cosmetic. But just cosmetic or worse, they could mm-hmm. make it worse. Yeah. And you know, they could put stuff in from TPP, and it could go from, like, death on toast to death on toast on steroids. Yeah. So the the thing Lighthizer's been able to do is basically so far, he's been able to hold to his vision of what the renegotiation should be, and he's been working with the unions on it. Now, in the end, could the president pull the rug out from under him? Yeah. Until we see a final text, we won't know. But as someone who is the most skeptical of skeptics about all these things, because you and, you and I have talked about this for years, I am a hardliner on these agreements. They have to be right or I'm not going to support them. Yeah, me too. They actually are making significant progress on the labor standards, raising wages in Mexico issues. Not Hmm. there yet, but it's a stunning set of developments. If if they end up landing it, it's going to be worth something for sure. Well, they've got now. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, and they have basically demanded a major rollback of those investor state dispute settlement ISDS attacks um, that looks promising. Now, again, got to see it on paper. And they're still pushing for what they're calling a sunset clause, which I think is a very clever idea where the whole damn agreement automatically terminates every certain number of years unless the parties actively decide to reauthorize it. Hmm. That puts the default on accountability. The default is if you can't make this look good and reauthorize it, it goes away. Right. Will all of this be in there? Who the heck knows? But so far, it's been barking up the right tree. I'm curious how the change in the Mexican government is going to influence all this. We, we now have a government in Mexico that's much more, much more progressive, much less corporatist. And, uh, you know, the idea of working with the United States to raise labor standards in Mexico, I would think would appeal to them because they want to build a middle class. Well, in fact, probably one of the main reasons that the progress that has been made to date on the labor standards has happened is because AMLO's 
negotiators were already sitting in six weeks, two months before the July 1st election. And they have been adamant that the NAFTA, any NAFTA, because he'd be left having to implement it. The current Mexican president would probably be signing if it's done soon. But AMLA would have to implement it. They've been adamant that it supports their mission of raising wages, which sets up a real interesting dynamic but, you know, in the end, could be good for workers all across the North, all across North America. The interesting dynamic, of course, I should be more clear, is Trump is trying to attack workers' rights. So how perverse is his trade agreement to act as a way to actually improve labor rights? Well, he's got to deliver on at least one of his campaign promises. <laughs> Everything else he's going backwards on. So, you know, he said he was going to protect Social Security. He's not doing that. He said he was going to protect Medicare. He's not doing that. He said he was going to, you know, work for, uh, you know, it's, he's got to do something. But And his tax scam promotes outsourcing. I mean, yeah. key provisions in the tax scam are going to open the floodgates to more outsourcing, which is tragic, because let's just say yeah. they actually deliver on this NAFTA replacement in a way that actually significantly significantly reflects the demands the progressives have always made. Let's see how miraculous, but let's just say it happens. Thanks to what they did in the damn tax scam bill, they still could have a net loss of manufacturing jobs, because even if you start to reverse some of the NAFTA damage, the tax scam outsourcing incentives will, you know, cause mm. a huge new wave. It's heartbreaking. So but, you know, so he's, he's, offering us, he's offering us a carrot, or he's offering us something good, that he says, I'm negotiating something good, but what he's actually done with the tax scam is something terrible in the same in the same realm. Yeah, here's the thing that strikes me. If we can get the NAFTA model right, mm-hmm. we'll have actually started to create a new model for US trade agreements right. and have a platform from which to build, please God, in two and a half years when there is a new not Donald Trump president, ideally a progressive, progressive one, because it will be during a Trump administration if they pull this off. that they make the model for U.S. trade agreements an agreement with real labor standards. An agreement that doesn't have the investor tribunal can work from there. This is the one big area where these trade negotiations and all this stuff, this is the stuff that progressives have been fighting for for decades. And, you know, since Reagan, essentially, and arguably since Nixon. And now you've got a Republican president doing it. You know, I'm still skeptical. But I'm hopeful. Lori Wallach, uh, TradeWatch.org is the website. You can tweet her at Wallach Lori. Lori, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Great talking with you, as always. Marta in Big Bear Lake, California. Hey, Marta, thanks for uh, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, I want to connect. Pardon me. Connect undo- undocumented immigrants to NAFTA. And uh, I think the Democrats might learn, you know, and we might uh, have a new, a more progressive um, trade policy. What happened in 1994 when NAFTA went into effect is our corporations and banks uh, took over, began to take over. They flooded uh, Mexico with Walmart products and Iowa corn, and, uh, and they put a million farmers off their land. Mexican farmers, yep. Family members, and Walmart put millions of craftspeople out of their multi-generational crafts. That's all they knew. Our, our toilet paper companies went down there and took over their indigenous forests uh, that, you know, now the people had no forest to get their food from. 
and our banks went down there and got people on credit cards. Uh, we are in large part responsible for what goes on in the world, and I'm asking, and I hope that you will, you know, keep informing us, but what do the Democrats want? What is our trade policy? Because all I hear on mainstream media is we need to protect protect the Iowa soy farmers. Well, you know what? Cash crops are not healthy anyway, and why are they not talking about the thousands of small farmers that have been taken over and put out of business by Monsanto and, you know, all these huge agribusiness corporations. And if they try to grow organic, then Monsanto sues them. And, you know, it's like they can't afford 10 years in, in, in court with their attorney fees and everything, so they lose their family farms. So the media has the violence out for the soy farmers, uh, the poor soy farmers, but they're not talking about the millions, you know, 65,000 factories that were lost in, you know, because of NAFTA and the WTO. What do you, what do you think? No, I, I agree with you. And, and I would add to that, that, that soy is by and large used as, as feed for animals. And, you know, so it's a, it's, a, it's a subsidy of animal agriculture, which is one of the things that's killing this planet. And if those Iowa farmers were to stop growing soy and start growing fruits and vegetables, then right. we would all be healthier, they would be more profitable, and Monsanto would be SOL. They'd be in big trouble. And that's probably why it's not happening right now. Plus, they'd have to engage in regenerative agricultural practices. I mean, chain, you know, they'd have a whole bunch of smaller crops that they could rotate and things and keep the soil healthy rather than this extractive uh, agricultural practice of just pulling all the nutrients out of the soil and replacing them with just you know, phosphorus and nitrogen. It, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and NAFTA is responsible for a large chunk of that. Uh, I remember also the other thing that, that is responsible for a large part of it, uh, Mar- Marta, is uh, Reagan's policies in 82 when he stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act. And the result of that was not only an explosion of mergers and acquisitions and a consolidation across the landscape. We have about half as many uh, publicly traded companies right now as we had then. Uh, it's, you know, at every, at every level, I talked about this a couple of days ago, you know, at every level, it's been corrosive and destructive uh, to the United States. But in addition to that, when Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act, these big ag companies came in and started buying up farms. And, and the farmers, and I remember I, I was living in Michigan at the time, and we saw this happening. And, and well, we were living in New Hampshire, actually, by that time when Reagan came in. And, and, but you could see it happening all across the country that, that people who had been farming for five, ten generations were suddenly, you know, had to sell their farms and became sharecroppers, became tenant farmers. They, they were renting their house and their land from the big agricultural companies and working their butts off. Uh, you know, without making the profits, the profits are going to the big companies. And this is when Willie Nelson started Farm Aid. Remember that? Exactly. And you know what? You are talking about Mexico and the farmers there. And yep. you're linking that to the farmers in the U.S. And in neither case are, you know, the, the people uh, voting for these horrendous policies. We don't want them. So what is, uh, you know, what can the Democrats do? Because Trump uh, took the, the, the fair trade narrative because the Democrats didn't have, you know, in my opinion, didn't have a, a good trade policy. It's like, you know, they've just surrendered 
the, the, uh, the, the whole issue of trade to the neoliberal Republicans, and now the media is taking the neoliberal Republican line. What can we do to renegotiate NAFTA for human rights, environmental rights, uh, a trade that's good for Americans and Mexicans. Yeah, well, Trump is renegotiating it right now. I don't think that environmental rights and human rights are high on his list, but he is he is all about raising wages. We'll see what happens. I'm skeptical that he can pull it off, and I'm skeptical that e even if he does uh, do what Robert Lighthizer is suggesting, which is actually reasonably good policy, I'm skeptical that the Republicans in Congress will go along with it. So we'll see. I mean, this is, Sherrod Brown has been one of the real leaders on this. The Democrats, particularly the Progressive Caucus, have been pushing basically, you know, this policy of we need to abandon these so-called free trade policies. They're not free and they're not really trade. They're, they're managed trade. Well, they are trade. They're, they're managed trade. They're, they're, they're managed to the benefit of the corporations and to the detriment of the farmers, the American farmers, the Mexican farmers, and to workers all over the country. So, yeah, spot on. Marta, thank you for the call. Bob Ney, the author of Sideswiped. Congressman, welcome back. What's going on in the hey, world? Thank you. Thank you, Tom. How about we start, there's a lot going on, how about we start with Ohio's nail-biter? Okay. A little bit additional bite. And that's the old 12th, well, the current 12th congressional district. Two counties uh, I used to serve in, by the way, Muskingum and Licking in that district. Mm -hmm. And then towards the western half was John Kasich for quite a few years. Then he left and went on to Wall Street, then on to governor, and then Pat Tiberi. And then T. Berry resigned, and that's how we got into the election process, okay. obviously, for the special. But what I wanted to mention is that they found 588-some ballots, and of those ballots, Danny O'Connor, the Democratic um, candidate, has gained 190 of those votes over Troy Balderson, the Republican. And why that's significant uh, is because these are the suburbs. Now, if, in fact, O'Connor, the Democratic candidate, is successful because there's going to be most likely a recount, and plus there's 3,000-some provisional outstanding ballots and absentee ballots, overseas ballots, and the difference of the race, Tom, is 1,500-some votes. Uh, some of the Republicans will probably argue that, th that those uh, 588 uh, uncounted ballots that are now counted were from the suburbs, therefore should have probably have been Balderson's. But if you look at how this seat has operated in this voting pattern, Tom, that's not necessarily true because Pat Tiberi last election, I think, if I remember correctly, won by about 35 points. Mm -hmm. That seat has been Republican for three decades. Yep. Bob, Bob Shemansky was the last Democratic uh, person to hold it. In the 80s. That seat. Right. right. It, so if you look at all everything that's coming together, and by the way, this is no reflection on, um, on Danny O'Connor at all. He ran a good campaign. But, you know, Danny O'Connor was no, you know, Barack Obama in the sense that he was electric constantly and had the media surrounding him, et cetera, et cetera. He's a good candidate. And he's a good person. But I'm just trying to make the point that in normal circumstances, being a good candidate and a good person wouldn't get you a win in this seat. Right. In other words, he's not Mr. Charisma. He he wasn't. He right. didn't catch the the eye and the interest of the media, and right. and so he just ran a conventional Democratic campaign. He's kind of a conventional Democrat, and still he's kicking ass. Oh, he uh, he most certainly did because you know we were predicting this to be within two percent, 
And uh, a lot of people said, that doesn't happen in that seat. You know, Mm -hmm. we're wrong. Uh, They're going to win by 5 or 6% on the Republican side. That didn't happen. So this is definitely an indicator. By the way, uh, Pence was in here. Trump was in here. Any Republican leader with a pulse was in in this district. And Pat Tiberi, the former congressman, gave about $400,000 directly to Balderson from day one. Well, and Balderson raised, uh, as I recall, either four or six times uh, raised and spent more, or maybe it was total spending in the campaign because there was uh, millions of dollars that came in from outside the state, uh, presumably through the Koch network, but I'm I'm not frankly sure. Uh, But millions of dollars came in from outside the state to, by and large, the majority of it to the Republican candidate. Well, correct. And so he had all of the benefits. So I just wanted to point out, I, uh, this is going to be uh, an indicator for the fall that yeah. uh, that the races are tight. It's Ohio. It's it's a Republican district. And by the way, there were no major scandals on Balderson, the Republican. I wanted mm-hmm. to mention that there yeah. was no silver bullet. There was nothing that came out that people gasped right. and had to make a decision on. So just wanted to set this. So this is more of a bellwether than people race. might think. I'm sorry, what's that? This is more of a bellwether than people might think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I believe that. And speaking of bellwethers, the other story we're carrying, which everybody's talking about, but it's Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, he's seeming to indicate that the old rule that justice cannot become involved in an election uh, is sort of this case. It's not. The president of the United States is not up for an election. Correct. You know, uh, well, uh, not only that, so, the thing that baffles me, you know, Trump has said to Miller, uh, to Mueller, uh, no, thanks. I'm not going to talk to you uh, or I would only talk to you under these conditions. What's preventing Mueller from issuing a subpoena? Well, now, that was the, what, what we were carrying today in this story and trying to analyze this. Uh, he could he could potentially issue a subpoena. What Giuliani has done, he is, he has. And by the way, all of these leaks are not coming from Mueller. All of these leaks are coming from the White House. Everything right. we find out is coming vis-a-vis the White House. Right. So what Giuliani has done is he has sent a, an offer to the Mueller team that they can't do, right. you know, mo- making the most narrow conditions of how the president will answer obstruction of justice questions and issues. And he knows Mueller can't do anything about it. So Giuliani is thinking, I, I believe in this move, that either Mueller does nothing and therefore they go past the midterms, and as the candidates are out there for the House and the Senate, you know, they're able to say, you see, there really was nothing substantial, nothing came out of the Manafort trial directly uh, tying Trump. Uh, This is a witch hunt if they get narrowed on the topic. This is a political strategy, not a legal strategy. It's all designed. It's all designed to make it more difficult to impeach Trump if you know, if and when the, the the knowledge of his crimes becomes widespread. Absolutely. And then the second part is, let's say that Mueller does issue a subpoena. Let's say that he does it because Trump, Trump's lawyers are refusing to have any interaction, and he issues a subpoena. They will then attempt to ignite the base with you know the whole subpoena thing. Sure. On the heels of it is the Nunes, you know, a secret recording that came out with Nunes, who was the chairman that was supposed right. to look into the Russia election. Yet during the fundraiser for you know one of the uh, the candidates running, he makes it very clear that uh, they have to protect. Trump, mm-hmm. unless Sessions would unrecuse himself in the case. Yeah. So you can see what they're building up. And then if, if Mueller does issue a subpoena, it probably will go right to the Supreme Court, right? Oh, absolutely. It would be tied up for, I, you know, it could be tied up for a year, uh, of course. And then right. uh, Trump has the appointment to the court, Kavanaugh, 
Right. So I think you can Who, see, you And know, Kavanaugh, you know, I, I was predicting he was going to pick Kavanaugh from the get-go because Kavanaugh was the one guy who thinks, out of all these nominees, potential nominees, who thinks that the president should not be uh, subpoenaed and should not be and cannot be indicted. Yes, sir. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Bob Nay with Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Great talking with you. Nancy Altman's on the line with us. She's the president of Social Security Works. She's the chair of Strengthening Social Security. She's the author of three books, including her latest, The Truth About Social Security, The Founders' Words Refute Revisionist History, uh, which we did a book report on a week or so ago. SocialSecurityWorks.org, of course, is the website, and you can tweet at SSWorks. Nancy, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a while. I love your book. I absolutely love your book. And I, in particular, liked chapter five. In the immortal words of Yogi Berra, this is deja vu all over again. You talk about Social Security, and then you talk about the tiny splinter group with oversized influence. You want to tell us about that? Yes. Um, there's always been, from the beginning, um, even before Social Security was enacted, a what President Dwight Eisenhower labeled a tiny splinter group who he described as their number is negligible and they are stupid. They've always hated Social Security. That goes against about 90% of the American public who, no matter how you slice the population, Tea Partiers, union members, um, women, men, every people of color, everyone really supports Social Security, would like to see it expand and not cut. In the early days, the people who hated it were honest about it. They called it socialism. They said this is not appropriate for the government and so on. Today, even the opponents say, we love Social Security, but we can't afford it. And that's why I wrote the truth about Social Security, because the truth is we can afford it so much more now than we could back in 1935. We should be expanding it not cutting it. The question about whether to expand or cut Social Security is a question of values, not affordability. And the other argument that these guys are making is, oh, it's falling apart. It's not working. I kind of stopped the it's a Ponzi scheme rhetoric because I know that people aren't buying it. But I believe in the last, I'm not sure if it was the tax scam bill or it was one of the budget bills that were passed just before that, but they cut several hundred million dollars out of the Social Security budget to scale back on the basically the number of employees that Social Security can have to make their service to us worse. So the, the whole neoliberal strategy has four parts to it. Number one, defund federal agencies or state agencies or whatever, defund public properties. Number two, therefore, by defunding it, create a problem or a crisis. Number three, scream about the crisis. And number four, offer privatization as the solution and somebody makes a profit. Where are we at with that right now? How successful are they being at chopping away the support structure of Social Security so that people will be increasingly inclined to say, oh, it's a pain in the butt. It's, it's a huge hassle. I'd really rather deal with Citibank. You know, you are exactly right. And these lines of attack, and one of the reasons I call this a lot of, of what's gone through the history of Social Security is zombie lies, because you, it's whack-a-mole. You hit one down, and so, okay, okay, the Ponzi scheme doesn't work. Okay, let's cut the Social Security offices. Okay, there's a big uproar about that. Let's say we can't afford it, we have to privatize it. It's just these, we knock them down and they keep coming back. So you were exactly right that there have been these, well, there are a couple things that are going on now. The Republicans vastly increased the deficit 
by these huge tax giveaways to the extremely wealthy. And before the ink was even dry, even though Social Security is self-financed, doesn't add a penny to the deficit, even before the ink was dry, they said, okay, well, we got this deficit, we're going to have to cut Social Security. So that's one line of attack. Another is, as you say, we have a population that's aging. We should be opening field offices. Instead, the the Republicans have strangled the budget of the Social Security Administration. And it's very important to understand that the money we contribute to Social Security, which currently has a $2.9 trillion surplus in its um, accumulated reserve, that doesn't just pay our benefits. That also pays for all the field offices, for the employees that work there, for the telephones, for the computers. And so, again, it doesn't contribute a penny to the deficit, but it, but Congress limits how much Social Security Administration can pay. So people with disabilities, there's a huge backlog. We find the Washington Post reported that 10,000 people died a year ago simply waiting to get a final determination about their earned Social Security benefits. That's just an outrage. People are going homeless. People are going bankrupt. We should be, as I say, expanding Social Security administration, expanding offices. And as an aside, there's an overall attack on the civil service, an effort to really politicize the civil service, make it easier to fire, make them make them really patronage jobs. And part of and that is a direct attack on our earned Social Security benefits. Yeah, we're talking with Nancy Allman. Her new book, The Truth About Social Security, is brilliant. Nancy, I want to play a clip for you from Franklin Roosevelt and just get your thoughts on it. This is just a short little one minute from a speech. I don't have the year here in front of me. So anyhow, here it is. This is FDR. Great. Let me warn you and let me warn the nation against the smooth evasion that says, of course, we believe these things. We believe in social security. We believe in work for the unemployed. We believe in saving homes. Cross our hearts and hope to die. We believe in all these things. But we do not like the way the present administration is doing them. Just turn them over to us. We will do all of them. We will do more of them. We will do them better. And most important of all, the doing of them will not cost anybody anything. <laughs> now, Nancy, that was the 1930s, right? And That is correct. Uh, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt and the people around him were visionary. They had a really bold concept of improving our security, both our physical security, winning World War II, and our economic security. He also really understood the American people. And he, in that, in fact, a few months before Social Security was introduced in Congress, he warned the American people that they were going to hear all kinds of things, that it was socialism, it was fascism, it was this, it was that. And he warned people, don't be fooled. This is just fear-mongering. And the same thing you heard, the clip you just played, that could have been played today. Yep. You could, they could have been referring to Paul Ryan and Donald Trump and uh, the whole crew of them, the tiny splinter group that 
President Eisenhower warned us about. Yeah. So how do you see the future of Social Security? Are we to the point where it's hanging on a thread based on which party controls Congress and the White House, or is it still fairly robust? Well, it's definitely what the strongest thing Social Security has for it is it has got the American people behind it. The will of the people is to expand, not cut Social Security. The problem is the tiny splinter group that President Eisenhower talked about have oversized power because they are literal billionaires. I mean, the Koch brothers are pouring in huge fortune to try to elect people who are against Social Security. Pete Peterson, before he passed away, another billionaire, set up a foundation which is with us now. In fact, a number of the groups that are anti right. And he was a Wall Security. Street billionaire. I mean, you know, and Wall Street would be the direct beneficiary if Social Security were to go down in flames. Absolutely. I don't understand why Americans don't put two and two together on this. Absolutely. The, the amount of money that goes from Social Security to a Wall Street, zero. It's run by civil servants, and more than 99 cents of every dollar is returned in benefits to the American people. That would not happen with Wall Street. You'd see, you know, 20 percent going to Wall Street, um, if, if, if not more. Yeah, um, just so like we have with our health insurance. Yeah, and it's what happens with um, 401ks and, and mm-hmm. private pensions. Yep. Um, so as long as the American people are alert and vote their pocketbook on this will be fine. The good news is that the party of Franklin Roosevelt, the Democratic Party, has really rediscovered its roots. They are now on record for expanding, not cutting Social Security. They're on record for Medicare for All. They're on record. It's great stuff. Thank you so much for writing this brilliant book and for coming on our program today. Thank you so much for having me. Nancy Allman, her new book, The Truth About Social Security. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high-tech. And yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary. And it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. 
And welcome back to our Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green, the subtitle Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. This is from the afterword, the very last chapter. It's titled Kali Yuga, which in Hinduism is when the earth goes into a phase of destruction. In the shell-shocked aftermath of the election, President Obama, looking shaken, appeared in the White House Rose Garden to deliver public remarks intended to project a sense of calm, a sense, really, that the basic stability of our country remained intact. Sun is up, Obama said. I know everybody had a long night. I did as well. Had a chance to talk to President-elect Trump last night, about 3.30 in the morning, I think it was, to congratulate him on winning the election. End of quote. The next day, when the two men appeared together in the Oval Office, it felt as if the world had slipped through the looking glass. Trump quickly named Bannon his chief White House strategist. Republicans controlled every branch of government. With Trump's ability to defy every political norm, anything seemed possible. Who could argue otherwise after what had just transpired? And yet, within days of his inauguration, Trump's White House was plunged into chaos and scandal, from which it has not recovered and may never. Bannon, the, imagining, the imaginative reconceiver of U.S. politics, hung streams of paper listing, listing Trump's promises from the walls of his West Wing office. His strategy, as always, was to launch furious attacks, this time to, quote, shock the system, end quote, and rapidly reorient the federal government in a more nationalist direction. He called this, with what I took to be intentional irony, a shock and awe approach to asserting Trump's power. But Trump's flurry of activity quickly ran into problems. There was his executive order, sprung a week after his inauguration, banning immigrants from seven majority Muslim countries, which set off nationwide protests and was blocked by the courts. His firing two weeks later of National Security Director Michael Flynn for contacts with the Russians. The collapse of his first major legislative initiative, a bill to repeal Obamacare. His firing of FBI Director James Comey. And the swift descent of the West Wing into a, into a viper's nest of backstabbing and leaks. This quick turn toward a crack-up was hardly unforeseeable or even altogether surprising, but it contrasted sharply with the success of a candidate who had dominated his opponents, shaped news coverage, and shown himself to be all but impervious to the forces that overwhelm other politicians. Bannon, whose wild gambits in the campaign had invariably paid off, seemed to run out of magic tricks when Hillary Clinton was no longer a target. The government wasn't as malleable to Trump and Bannon's aggressions as the Republican Party and the cable news channels had been, and they found themselves consistently thwarted and undermined by the courts, by right-wing hardliners in Congress, by their own inexperience and Trump's errant tweets, and by the bureaucracy they were now overseeing. The crises these failures precipitated in the White House cost Bannon much of his influence and soon threatened Trump's presidency. While still early in his term, the possibilities that uh, Trump's most ardent supporters once imagined for his presidency already seem to be more, mostly foreclosed. I think there are three main reasons why Trump's administration has so quickly fallen into disorder and confusion. Number one, Trump thought being president was about asserting dominance. Just after he'd locked up the GOP nominations, Trump said something to me that crystallized his view of politics and explains, to my mind, much of his subsequent difficulties. Quote, I deal with people that are very extraordinarily talented people, he told me. I deal with Steve Wynn. I deal with Carl Icahn. I deal with killers that blow these politicians away. It's not even the same category. This, he meant politics. This is a category that's like 19 levels lower. Brilliant killers. 
Trump was equating politics with business, presidency with the job of being a big shot CEO, a killer. He filled the upper ranks of his administration with people of a similar mindset. Gary Cohn, Wilbur Ross, Steve Bannon, aggressive, domineering men accustomed to getting their way by dint of their position. None had government experience, nor did many others in the West Wing. So none anticipated the problems this approach to governing would cause. Trump's self-conception as the all-powerful apprentice boss blinded him to a fundamental truth of the modern presidency, that the president needs Congress more than the Congress needs the president. Trump's domineering instincts serve him poorly, since most members of Congress are secure in their jobs and accountable mainly to their own constituents. And it backfired disastrously when Trump fired Comey after he refused to submit to a pledge of loyalty to his boss. Number two, Trump ran against the Republican Party, Wall Street, and Paul Ryan, but then took up their agenda. Populists often struggle to govern, but Trump scarcely attempted to lead the populist revolution that he promised. In May, he told me he would transform the Republican Party into a workers' party. But while he kept voicing populist sibyleths, the legislative agenda he took up was the standard conservative fare pushed by Paul Ryan. During the GOP primary, Trump has shrewdly sensed its weak point, Ryan's desire to finance tax cuts for the rich by cutting programs like Social Security and Medicaid armed the party's white, blue-collar base. Trump told me he'd made this point to Ryan directly. He said, quote, there's no way a Republican is going to beat a Democrat when the Republican is saying, we're going to cut your Social Security, and the Democrat is saying, we're going to keep it and give you more. The book is Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. Mike in Los Angeles listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, just wanted to load uh, a couple of brief notes on fire behavior out here mm-hmm. and how it's changing with global climate change. One is that uh, UC Irvine study that uh, determined that droughts are raising temperatures and feeding back into creating more droughts because as the water evaporates from the soil, it becomes warmer. They've established this by studying uh, southwest Right. Once, once, once most of the water is gone, that, that evaporative process, which, you know, takes a lot of, cal- I think, what is it, 500 calories to, to evaporate one cc of water to convert it from liquid to gaseous state. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and well, once anyway. that's gone, the, the cooling effect of the water is gone. Yeah. Right. And uh, also, starting last year, we heard firefighters saying that in all my 30 years on the job, I've never seen fire behavior like we're seeing now. Well, that's uh, certainly coming to uh, reality in this year's fire season, which, of course, is stretching nowadays throughout the year. And the most remarkable thing, I think, is a fire tornado, which showed up in the car fire Mm. toward the end of July. Yeah, these storms are creating their own weather. Well, creating their own weather, but this is a a new creature as far as I can tell. And uh, this is basically an EF3 tornado built Mm. out of fire. And it uh, initially was about 500 yards across, moving at, eyewitnesses say, from 12 miles per hour to faster than a human being can run. Mm. And this fire tornado actually jumped the Sacramento River, which is at, at its narrowest is about 15 yards wide. And naturally, the uh, people in charge of evacuations and uh, warning people to get out of their homes were somewhat surprised by how destructive and how quickly uh, this thing moved. Yeah. 
The, a lot of this, Mike, is the consequence of the jet stream falling apart, which is the consequence of the Arctic warming six times faster than the temperate latitudes. And coming out of that is the weather systems that used to move very rapidly uh, are now moving very, very slowly because the jet stream is kind of drooling down into the mid-latitudes and not moving the way it used to. The, the speed of the current, the, the rigidity of the jet stream itself has been lost. And so this is the new normal, it seems. And, and, and if this is the new normal, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how many places are going to be able to survive it? We've got flooding on the East Coast and droughts and fires on the West Coast. And rising sea levels. Yeah. And as of this moment, a bunch of school districts east of L.A. and the interior are closed due to air quality from one of the fires that's burning out there. Yeah, from the smoke. What's going on right now is absolutely incredible, and a lot of people are just stunned by it. Darja Mail just sent me a clip. This is from arctic-news.blogspot.com. In 2014, the average temperature in the Arctic on July 6th was uh, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, right, 2014. In 2015, it went up to 43 degrees Fahrenheit. In 2016, it went to 47 degrees Fahrenheit. In 2017, it went to 57 degrees Fahrenheit. And this year, it's 61.9 degrees. The Arctic, I mean, and keep in mind, in 2014, it was below freezing. So we've got a serious problem here, and this is what's driving the insane weather across the world, at least across the Northern Hemisphere. So thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. And thank you all for being with us today. And don't forget, democracy, as President Obama used to love to say, as did Bernie, democracy is not a spectator sport. You've got to get out there and get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 